Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. We start once again with another rocky week for Donald Trump. Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign chair, resigned this week after allegations that he received millions of dollars advising the corrupt pro-Russian government of Viktor Yanukovych, who was removed from power in 2014. Though, according to a number of Trump campaign insiders, all of whom seem to want to remain anonymous, the Ukraine issue wasn't really why Manafort was pushed out, or technically why he chose to resign. Uh, He was brought into the campaign to discipline Trump and help him become more presidential, and by all accounts, Trump bristle at this. Now, to replace Manafort, Trump has chosen Stephen Bannon, the executive chairman of the stridently pro-Trump website Breitbart News. So what did you think about this uh, this campaign shakeup for Donald Trump, Jay? Well, I think it's it's uh, much needed. Um, is it too little too late? I, I don't know. Um, you know, it's one of those you never know the insides of when someone leaves. And, you know, it's there's often a number of reasons. And Sometimes valid reasons on both sides, and maybe it's just not a good fit. Although Paul Manafort and Trump would seem to be a good fit, um, uh, he's also enlisted uh, Kellyanne Conway, uh, another sort of well-known right-wing uh, right. uh, pollster commentator. Um, and you know, I, I would say in the last week since this change, uh, the Trump messaging has been much more consistent uh, and more more to the point, and and there's been less, you know, again, again, this is also so weird because it's sort of relative, you know, I mean, compared to any other political candidate, it's one thing compared to, you know, prior Trump and something else. But it, it, it's, he's been much more disciplined this last week. Now, maybe that's because he just got the new campaign team this week and, and maybe this will only last for a week. But uh, I think his statements in Milwaukee uh, last week and, and uh, statements in Virginia yesterday were, you know, the speeches were, were on point. They were on message. He had a couple good lines. Um, he was working off a teleprompter, uh, you could tell. And, uh, again, you, you, you look at this guy and you say, oh, well, he's, he's not crazy. He sounded like a, a regular presidential candidate to a well, certain extent. Okay. To the, you know, again, sure. again on, the, on the Trump scale. Sure. You know, but, and, and that's kind of at odds with with what we know about Bannon. I mean, for the most part he's a I mean he's a very aggressive sort of guy. He's he's, you know, uh wants Trump to be Trumpier, but Trump has been less Trumpy in a way. And so yeah, I'm kind of skeptical that that actually that actually will last. It it seems to me and you know this has been a uh, something that's been talked about uh, by by some folks in the media for the last week that Maybe at this point, Trump realizes that his chances of actually becoming the next president are not that great. And so he's setting things up for the next move. He's surrounding himself with media people. And there's talk that he's maybe setting up a post-presidential run uh, TV network or media empire to to challenge Fox. Uh, I, I had heard that. And that's that's pretty funny. Uh, I mean, I guess, we, you know, we just, we just wait and see. Um, I, I don't know that those those – uh, thoughts necessarily go into these immediate changes in, in the campaign team. Yeah. Uh, I think it's more driven by realizing that, look, you do have a real problem in the polls here. Um, 
Uh, although if, if people haven't seen it, the, the Trump lawyer on um, responding on CNN uh, with the, the says who. Oh, that's very funny. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's 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 hilarious. <laughs> it's just, again, just bizarre to some extent. Um, but uh, I, look, I, I think the the changes are so far good ones. We'll see if he stays on point. And to the point of, of um, Trump being aggressive, it's one thing to be aggressive and focused. Uh, and and that can be a really good thing. Uh, Trump's problems before were were he was largely aggressive and unfocused. Uh, he was aggressive in going after the Khan family or Paul Ryan or or you know other people who are uh, who he's not running against, uh, which is what what was really unhelpful. Um, so uh, aggressive and Trumpy is fine, uh, but you still need to have that that focus and discipline. You know, I and I think. Well, for me, I don't really know that there are good changes. I think what Trump has been doing this last week is better than what he had done before, but he had really nowhere to go but up. But it just seems to me that if your campaign's in trouble, what you don't do is hire somebody to run it who's never even participated in a national campaign, not to not to mention run one before. I mean, this is not the sort of thing that you can you know learn as you go, especially given the fact that it's not going to be really that long before early voting begins and when you have no kind of organization. And you know, there there are a couple pieces here. What the reason why? People People are thinking that maybe Trump is looking ahead. Number one, Roger Ailes is supposedly helping him prepare for debates, and they're they're on friendly terms. And of course, Roger Ailes recently was ousted from Fox News sure. because so Rogers Rogers looking for work. So, yeah, yeah, you know, and not only that, but it turns out at least sources say that Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, and Greta Van Susteren have clauses in their contracts that allow them to leave Fox News if Roger Ailes leaves. Put that together, and they they were all supporters of of Ailes, and uh, you know, uh, put that together, and maybe bring in Sarah Palin and some other folks, and and you have Bannon here with the with the Breitbart, and all of a sudden you can you can sort of see the genesis of something, and I think it's I, you know again, is is Trump thinking that far ahead? Who knows? But it's an interesting idea because if. Trump is actually thinking about doing this death. I think that would be an absolute disaster for the Republican Party going forward, because if Trump loses and there's a very good chance that he's going to lose, you know, the the hope was that Trump would kind of fade away. But if he can, can do this sort of stabbed in the back, elections were rigged, system was rigged narrative for the next four years and threatened to run again. I mean, this only, you know, keeps those that split in the Republican Party going, which would be, I think, absolutely horrible for for the GOP. And I certainly hope that that's not the case. Sure. And and I I hope that's not the case, too. But um, I, I think there's going to be a, a sense of. And again, this is all really speculation at this point. Oh, absolutely. This is, sort of, this is happens, and if he puts this together and, and so forth. Um, you know, if you remember, Ross Perot uh, ran again in 1996. Um, right. And and I don't recall – I mean he got something, you know, I, th- I believe it was like 18 percent of the vote in, in 92. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it was, you know, single digits below five in 1996. Right. Um, you know, and I, I think that's – Perhaps if if there is a Trump wants to continue this, I think his his appeal grows more selective uh, as as the as time rolls on. Well, I mean, yeah, much, much like much like Sarah Palin's did, too. I mean, well, I think you can say when when Sarah Palin was first announced as the um, VP, VP for McCain, 
uh, it was a huge bump and, and uh, she was the conservative darling and, and she was the future of the party. Uh, and then after a couple months, after the kind of the, the crazy started to set in, uh, you know, again, she was she's doing reality shows. Um, so, well, here's where I think Trump is really smarter or I could see this actually. I think as a campaigner, he's ex- extraordinarily limited and, you know, running a national campaign and being a national candidate is a tough thing to do. And but as a marketer, I think he's. He's potentially brilliant. And the idea that you can kind of keep this brand going and make it very profitable by creating your own media network, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And obviously that's not something that either Perot or Palin were able to do, had the resources to do. So again, right. maybe maybe I'm giving Trump too much credit. I, I mean, I think he's a, an awful businessman. I certainly don't think he's the success he claims to be. I think he's an awful candidate. I think he would be an awful president. But as a marketer, I think he really knows his stuff as a marketer. I, yeah, I mean, just getting the name out there and the way he Absolutely. does that. But the other piece, going just going more back to the campaign, is with the new in the new shift, Trump is still so far behind on the basic campaign blocking and tackling type stuff. Uh, the setting up the field offices, the setting up the, the get up, get out the votes, the fundraising, um, all those things that that he probably thinks are pretty boring, and and they sort of are. Um, but but he is is so far behind on on those things. Uh, and I think that's going to start to show. It's starting to show already, and it's going to start to show. And to some extent, you can have all the uh, uh, the, the marketing in the world, but if you don't yeah. have that infrastructure, yeah, and you know, I, I don't think you're going to succeed. And we've talked about this before, and may, you know, we said maybe there's this idea that he didn't really ever expect to get this far, and all of a sudden it's like, oh wow, I'm 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 in the lead. Oh wow, I'm the nominee, and so what do I do now? And this kind of fits with this sort of larger, you know. Some people suggested Donald Trump maybe doesn't even want to actually be president. He just simply wants to be really, really famous and adored by millions. And so this whole idea of maybe he's not really trying to win so much as to become even more famous and popular and so forth. I mean, there's a certain sure, logic I to it. I buy that. Yeah. yeah. There's a certain logic to it. So, you know, another Trump story. Earlier this week, Trump gave a foreign policy speech in your old uh, stomping grounds there, Youngstown, Ohio. Youngstown, Youngstown State. Ohio, yes. Yeah. Uh, and in which he called for what he termed extreme vetting of immigrants to the United States, including the use of a questionnaire with an ideological test. And he also said that if elected, he would temporarily suspend immigration from what he called the most dangerous and volatile regions of the world. So what did you think about uh, Trump's uh, foreign policy remarks, Jay? Well, I've, I've said before, I think vetting immigrants, uh, particularly from – uh, those dangerous areas, and we're talking Syria and Iraq. Uh, I, I think that vetting. makes I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, extreme vetting. I'm not sure exactly what what that means. Um, and handing someone a questionnaire doesn't doesn't strike me as terribly extreme. Um, uh, nor does it strike me as, as particularly effective. Right. Um, but you're okay with like an ideological test? Oh, I I don't know. I suppose. Really? I mean, look, it, yeah, if, if you're going to be – I mean, in terms of what kind of ideological test we're talking about, um, is, is it a thing of, uh, look, if you're going to come here, do you promise not to advocate the violent overthrow of the United States government? 
Well, I think that's a fair question. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and yes. I wouldn't call that an ideological test. I'd call that a, you know, you, you promise not to commit crimes. That's a criminality, potential criminality test. But for instance, like, are you, you know, are you a follower, follower of Islam or something like that? You know, that's, that's a different story. Religious test. No, I, I, and I would, I would have problems with a religious okay. test. Okay. Okay. I see. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, like, like that. Uh, to me, again, to me, ideological means more just of, um, so like, are you, know, you a supporter you, of ISIS? What are your political beliefs, that kind, that of, kind of stuff. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. And and again, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, look, I mean, this is this is one of those weird sort of things where, you know, the the uh, pro gun people and myself always argue. Look, you know, it's like putting up a gun free zone uh, sign uh, that that's going to stop the shooter. Sure. Uh, if you have someone who is a coming in as and, and wants to is a terrorist and is going to commit some sort of act of terrorism, giving him a questionnaire and, and asking, uh, are you a terrorist? Yeah. Um, check the box. I mean, you will the catch the dumbest him. terrorist though. That's <laughs> exactly. about it. You know? So yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what that does. I mean, I think the, the more important thing are, you know, where are you from? Uh, where were you born? What have you been doing? What's, what's your job been? I mean, those sort of things that, that you can check people to right. see, uh, who they are now? The problem with that is is that information is difficult to come by. They can lie on that too, um, and and do we necessarily have the resources to to do all right. that checking? Well, and, and, I don't know. So, what about temporary temporary suspensions of immigration from entire countries or entire regions, as Trump seems to suggest he'd want to do? No, I, I think that's the blanket things like that are are just don't make sense. Uh, there, there are probably plenty of, I wouldn't say probably, I'm sure, I'm sure there are, uh, uh, plenty of people, uh, who would like to immigrate here, who have completely good reasons, who have jobs waiting for them, uh, who, who could really contribute to the American economy and American society and are absolutely no risk. Uh, and, and we shouldn't, uh, we're sort of hurting ourselves by not letting those people in, bringing those people in, uh, by doing some sort of a blanket, uh, block. Absolutely. Um, but again, I, I think, I think there needs to be a vetting process. It can't just be an open, uh, any, sure. anyone wants to, to come can. And, and we've talked before, there is a process. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, in, in your view, it's, it's pretty, pretty robust. Um, mm -hmm. but again, it's, it's, it's imperfect. I don't know whether there is a, a perfect one. So, you know, maybe there, there ought to be tightening and, and, those are those are tough details, and it's tough to sort of for us to hash it out just on our our show today. But um, yeah, extreme vetting. I mean, again, just it sounds silly and, and a questionnaire. It sounds extreme. A, a, yeah. lo a loyalty uh, oath. Yeah. Uh, again, just uh, strikes me as as sort of silly. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. You know, it, it wasn't such a great week for uh, Hillary Clinton exactly. Uh, I mentioned on Tuesday, the FBI turned over transcripts of Clinton's interviews with the agency to Congress after demands from congressional Republicans, some of whom are, I would say, chomping at the bit to have her tried for perjury. Um, now, one of the revelations in the transcripts was that Clinton claimed that Former Secretary of State Colin Powell advised her to use private email, and this is something that Secretary Powell later confirmed. Then on Friday, a Although, go oh, ahead. Okay, go, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Well, I said then on Friday, a federal judge approved a motion by the conservative group Judicial Watch ordering Clinton to answer in writing questions that the group posed related to her use of a private email server. But 
Clinton's answers are not due until November 14th, which is, of course, six days after the presidential election. So go ahead, Jay. You're going to say something about the about the Powell thing. About the, the Powell thing. Uh, I think you have to take a look at it. Uh, Colin Powell issued a statement uh, saying, no, what what he said was uh, he had set up a system whereby you could communicate non-classified information amongst the, the State Department uh, and he felt found it was was easy. Uh, he he notified everybody about this beforehand. And again, Powell's talking about. Uh, I believe this was in nineteen. It was in the the late nineties. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? It was in yeah, the I, uh, yeah yeah. It was in the actually in the in the, in the early two th- in the early two thousands because yeah. under Bush yeah yeah. And, and this would have been a, oh, yeah. a, a system where we didn't have the same internet. Stuff we did, and right, and right, okay, said, yeah. The, the the structure of the State Department uh, system was such that there wasn't a way to communicate non classified information uh, easily. They had one server; it was all it was all classified, right? Uh, so there was there was a I think a big difference to say uh, Colin Powell set up this system to communicate non classified information uh, amongst people. Uh, it was all public; everyone knew about it. Uh, it wasn't set up as an attempt to evade, uh, uh, you know, public record keeping law. It was right. it was a, uh, a a convenience. And as far as I know, Colin Powell didn't erase all the emails. Right. Yeah. And just to, just to be clear, <laughs> so so yeah, this was you know more than a decade ago. He was Secretary of State uh, in, in the first uh, the first Bush term from two thousand and one to two thousand and five. And yeah, things weren't as advanced, and the rules, in fact, did change. Uh, over time. And so what was okay under Secretary Powell wasn't really okay under Secretary Clinton. And, you know, nor nor was was hacking the kind of threat that it is. Sure, sure. And it's pretty clear that throughout this whole thing, Hillary Clinton, who has never been, you know, accused of being a, a smooth uh, speaker, uh, an elegant prevaricator, uh, certainly not like not like her husband, has uh, you know has stumbled and has mischaracterized and has very awkwardly spun this thing. Uh, and and you know it's it's a big problem for her. it would be a huge problem for her if she were running against anyone but but Donald Trump. Now the thing with Judicial Watch. I don't think that's going to be that big of a deal simply because, you know, obviously she's not going to submit her answers before the election. And also, obviously, she's not going to say, well, yes, I did this and it was a total breach of policy and I threatened national security, you know, that kind of thing. She's, you know, right. But but also. I think this might be the best case scenario for Republicans, the fact that she doesn't have to respond until after the election. Because if there's a bombshell right before the election, which I wouldn't think there would be in any case, you know, there's the possibility that Trump could win. And I think that's the worst case scenario for everyone. But if it happens right after the election, you know, maybe Clinton's ability to govern is crippled or at best, if you're a Republican, she's you know, impeached and convicted. Now, I don't think any of those things would happen, and I would not hope that any of those things would happen. I've said before that what I think Hillary Clinton did was 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 wrong, but not illegal. Was ill advised. Was horribly poor judgment, but not illegal, not a crime. I agree with the FBI on this. But in any case, I'm saying that you know, certainly, I think having it come out after the election is better for the country than if it comes out before the election. That's my argument. 
Oh, okay, I can see that. Uh, it would get to me what what again what her answers are going to be. I don't believe there's going to be any reason uh, why her answers that she would give to the judicial no. watch questions under oath would be any different than what she said the numerous times before. Yeah. Um, now, one of her top aides yeah, I, is also being deposed, and uh, I believe he uh, has to provide answers before the election sometime in late October. But again, it's not like those answers are going to be very carefully considered, and I would be really surprised if there's any sort of a major uh, major revelation in those. Well, the, the way this works is, you know, she'll have, at this point, Judicial Watch and, and essentially Congress will have um, – statements under oath where now they can compare those statements to the various stories she's told right and match up the inconsistencies uh that's that's more what this is for and it sort of sets the here's here's what's under oath and if we find something down the road which i think would be i, I certainly certainly plausible you know given the the you know what the right. russians claim to have uh, that would contradict those statements. Uh, I agree that that puts her. So this is this isn't. I think this is less of a an election um, ploy or, or or election strategy, or if you, you want to call it any of that. It's more just about boxing her in uh, right. for the future. So I think you're right on that. I don't think it, it changes the election. I guess uh, one way or the other. I don't. I don't think anyone's one's votes are going to change, uh, or uh, you right. know they would they would be shocked uh, by allegations that. That Hillary Clinton is lying under oath. So, yeah, I, I think even if you know, even if they can make some sort of a halfway, I was going to use another term, but this is a clean show, uh, perjury charge. I mean, we've we've seen what happens when uh, when a Republican Congress tries to uh, tries to impeach and convict the Clinton, and I would expect the same sort of thing would happen again. But uh, if they want to have uh, we'll, at it, we'll we'll see. This yeah. is a different Clinton, though. This is a different Clinton. This is a sure. different Clinton, and we're at a different different time. That's true. It's a much more uh, polarized you know, if, time. If we had had a, a sputtering, struggling economy uh, in in nineteen ninety eight, I, I think the Clinton impeachment would have been would have been much different. Yeah, but we don't have that uh, like, now. Like, just but. like many people said, if we had been winning in Vietnam and we hadn't had that bogged down, Watergate would have been significantly different. So, well, I, um, yeah, we'll see. I kind of, I kind of welcome the Republicans to take their best shot because I think it's going to blow up in their faces, and I think it would be a great, uh, a great thing for for my party and 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 Hillary Clinton. So I hope they take their best shot after the election. So, all, all right. right um, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank two new and very generous supporters this week. First, mm-hmm. there's, yeah, there's, there's William from Richmond, Virginia, who writes, I love the show. Thanks for making it. Well, thank you, William. Thank you, William. Yeah, we really appreciate uh, uh, your support. And second is Una from London, England, another one of our international listeners who says she just discovered the show and she loves it. Oh well, thank you so much. Yeah, we we really do appreciate uh, the help. It means it means a lot to us, not just financially, which of course it does, but also it's uh, so gratifying to know that, uh, that that you're willing to support us like that. And if you're interested in helping us uh, keep the show going, you can do it. William and Una did. Just go to politicsguys.com and click on either our. PayPal or Patreon donation links we've got up there. We would, of course, really appreciate it. We've also put together some special rewards for our listeners and supporters, which you can check out by clicking on the listener rewards link on our site. 
Um, and did, did we mention last week that all those rewards are retroactive to yes. all our people? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So if you've already contributed and you're saying, where's my stuff? Just send us I an email screwed. and say, yeah, yeah where, <laughs> where's my stuff? And we will get that, uh, we will get that out to you. Uh, the, the politics guy sticker should be coming back from the factory. I don't know where the factory is, but the factory sometime in the next week or so, and we will get those out. Um, and there's other stuff as well. So, and finally, it'd be a big help if you could spread the word about the show by sharing and retweeting our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter and leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes as so many of you have already done. Thank you very much. Okay. Now, Jay, I cannot tell you how happy I am to get away from Trump and Clinton for a little bit and talk about an actual policy story. It's it's so nice because you know I'm a policy geek at heart. Well, As am I. Well, this week... I'm more an ideology geek. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so... Well, this week, uh, Aetna, the health insurer Aetna, announced it would dramatically cut back its participation in Obamacare exchanges, quitting 11 states and remaining in only four markets nationwide. Now, a number of other major insurers have also scaled back on Obamacare plan participation to the point where it's now estimated that in, in 2017, next year, 664 counties will have only one insurer in an Obamacare exchange, and that's up from 225 this year. So that's a pretty big gain. Now, some on the left are claiming that Aetna, which as recently as May said it was strongly committed to Obamacare, that it made its decision as the result of the Justice Department suing to block its merger with Humana. Now, the big question for me is, Why are insurers pulling out of Obamacare, and what does this mean for what is unquestionably the biggest legislative victory of President Obama's time in office? What do you think, Jay? Uh, I think it is a a situation where I'm I'm going to – there's a great line in um, the Radiohead song, Fake Plastic Trees, which is one of the most beautiful songs ever written and and I would expect should be played at my funeral, Uh, but that gravity always wins. And Indeed. and um, I think that's what this is. I mean, you 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 can you can defy the markets, you can defy uh, gravity, you can defy the natural laws of supply and demand for a, a certain period of time, given a certain amount of effort. Uh, but in the end, those those fundamentals are always going to to operate. And Aetna is not making money on these these things; they're losing plenty of money. Uh, they they tried to get into a merger, which, which would have allowed them to uh, maybe shoulder those losses uh, for a longer period of time. Uh, and and uh, the government said no. So I think what you're seeing is, is, uh, is gravity winning. Uh, this, this, you know, the, the, the artificial rules that were put in place to hold this together. And, and some of this has to do with, uh, for example, let me pull up the name of the, the program. Well, I'm not going to have the name of the program in front of me. Uh, but the idea is that that healthier uh, companies, companies with a healthier mix, uh, risk mix, uh, are essentially having to subsidize those with with the less health, healthy mix. Uh, and and again, it 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 just isn't working. So yeah, I largely agree with you. I mean, what insurers have said more or less across the board is that they underestimated how sick. 
the people that would sign up for these exchanges would be. One of the big problems is one of the healthiest groups, of course, is younger people, and they have not been signing up. And in the numbers that that was hoped, and some think it's because the penalty for not signing up isn't great enough, and they just figure, well, it's just worth my while to pay the penalty instead of signing up for insurance, which costs a lot more. And so, I mean, you're right, I think, in that if they can't make money on this, why would they be involved? And so that's why I think this whole idea about uh, Aetna, you know, pulling out out of peak with, you know, out of being miffed at the Obama administration uh, about the merger thing. I think, no, it's a business decision. And I think fundamentally. And, and, no, and here's something else. Yeah, businesses operate based, I would say most businesses, you can maybe put the Trump thing in a, you know, Trump stuff in a different category. They typically don't operate out of peak. They, uh, they operate uh, – uh, based on whether they're making money or not, yeah. uh, emotions don't particularly matter. No, no, not at all. I, you know, I from the beginning, I've had my doubts about Obamacare, but that goes back to. And one of these days, we might want to do a whole ask the politics guys about it. Our incredibly screwy healthcare insurance system, where every single incentive in the system it seems seemingly designed to push high cost and not so great results. I mean, it's a horrible system. No one but an insane person would design a healthcare system like the one we have today. And and weirdly enough, this is something that people on the left and the right can agree on, though every the left and the right obviously have very different solutions to this. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I it's great. And in one way, you should say Obamacare has been a success in the sense that millions and millions of people who were not, who did not have any insurance now have insurance. But in terms of the larger problem of making healthcare, good healthcare affordable for everyone, it really hasn't done nearly what its proponents said it would do. And it's no surprise to me. Yeah. And, and uh, I would say again, you know, the, the biggest piece of of Obamacare to the extent you want to call it a success and I I would wouldn't call it that but uh, it's it's just simply been they've expanded the Medicaid roles right uh, the the portion of it of of people getting uh, private insurance uh, private insurance that that would be valuable to them um, that wouldn't have such high you know high deductibles that it's essentially the same as being uninsured uh that that has has not worked so yeah i mean so yeah we'll we'll, we'll see how this this goes but uh at some point there's going to have to be a change or you're going to hit that level that you know had been talked about when this was being passed that you get to this what's called a death spiral um where where you just you're just never able to uh get the mass to to uh have enough healthy people making up for all the sick people and and the whole thing just kind of collapses. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely it's going to prove to be unsustainable. I I never thought Obamacare was going to be a long, long long-term solution for, for anything. I thought it was a fatally flawed compromise. And I think we're just, that's just proving to be correct. It's, it's unfortunate because it would be great if I would, it would be great if I were wrong. The use of the word compromise is interesting though, but. Well, I mean, it was a compromise in the sense that it certainly wasn't the plan that the left really wanted. It was the best plan that could be pushed through the political system. But sure. again, when we're dealing with and again, but I'm I'm just just pointing out there was no there was no Republican involvement in it whatsoever. Well, it was a compromise just to get enough just to get enough votes just from, to get enough Democrats. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's and that's because on a lot of issues when there's really big big money involved, and obviously in healthcare there's big money involved. 
people, uh, you know, that these kind of partisan differences can fade somewhat. And when uh, when the lobbying can be so intense, you know, you take a look at the lessons of why the Clinton health, the Bill Clinton health care reform failed in part because they didn't take into account uh, what the lobbyists would want and what the you know vested interests would want. Well, Obama did that. But in doing that, in crafting something that was able to get through the political process, it was, I think, inevitably something that was going to be not very good. And that's kind of my yep. take on Obamacare. All right. All right. So uh, – it's time for Under the Radar, where we highlight a story from the last week we feel didn't get the attention it deserved. So my Under the Radar story for this week is about the Fight for 15, the national minimum wage proposal that was pushed by Bernie Sanders and then sort of awkwardly embraced by Hillary Clinton, like she awkwardly embraced the number of Sanders proposals. Um, so here's some background. In 2014, the city of Seattle passed a $15 an hour minimum wage law, which went into effect last year, on April 1st, it turns out, in 2015. A group called the Seattle Minimum Wage Study Team has taken a look at the first year of the program, comparing Seattle to surrounding demographically similar areas in the region, and they recently released a report with their conclusions. Now, their one unsurprising finding was that hourly wages did, in fact, rise modestly, which you would expect. But, right. but they also found that hours of employment for low-wage workers declined. And in the end, they concluded it was basically a wash. In other words, the decline in hours essentially offset the increase in pay. Now, they point out that it's still very early and it might take more time for the effects of the law to become fully evident. They also – you know, it's also important to point out this is only one study. But the reason I think this is important and worth mentioning is – kind of goes back to my belief that big changes in policy often have unexpected consequences, which is why I'm for smaller scale tests of policy ideas like the $15 an hour minimum wage in Seattle. And it's also why I'm not yet in favor of the national minimum wage fight for 15 thing, because to me, the best approach is to wait and see what happens at the local level, at a regional level, before we commit the entire country to a new standard. I mean, I'm all for increasing worker wages and doing something about income equality. I think those are huge and pressing and, and almost critical problems. But I think we need to be smart about how we go about it and not just enact things for the whole country because they sound like a good idea. Okay. Well, I think you're half, you're, you're half right on that. Well, I'll, uh, I guess I'll take that. Explain. What do you agree yeah, with well, and what do you disagree with? I would say that, that the, the findings that say that this is, um, uh, I guess, unexpected results. Um, no, I think that's pretty much what, what everybody expected and what they said would happen. Uh, people would get their hours cut. Um, so what this means is you have more people sort of working harder, I suppose, to, to try to try to get done what they need to get done. Um this this is I mean it's not a hard math or policy question to me is if you if you raise the cost of doing business are you going to get more more businesses opening um, uh, more businesses hiring if you increase the cost of labor uh, I it, it it just isn't going to happen and um, well that's where I think you're I think, wrong I think these I think this is this is going to sort of continue to play out and the place where where again where it hurts the most you know ironically. Uh, is is the place where it's it's needed most. I mean, I think what you need isn't so much more uh, a higher minimum wage, but more jobs, uh, jobs that 
that can maybe start at the minimum wage and then increase. Uh, because I think you would agree with me, the numbers bear out that for people, once you get up past that minimum wage uh, threshold bracket, you're into something else. Uh, you know, the minimum wage doesn't really matter that much for you. Uh, and it's it's a, a, a difference of get, letting people break into the employment system, so to speak, uh, or not. And, and I think that's uh, raising a minimum wage like this uh, uh, leads to, to fewer jobs. Uh, fewer jobs for for people who don't have a whole lot of skills to begin with and need a place to 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 get into the the system. Yeah, well, you know, where I think you're wrong on this is that you have your theory, and I know you that's shared with many of your many of your uh, friends on on the right, your friends in whatever Coke, uh, your ilk on the right. But but it's just that it's an economic theory, and what I'm saying is we can put this to the test. And I have okay. my theory, you know, and so you, you made a number of claims and I'm saying, okay, maybe those claims are valid and maybe they're not. But before I commit myself to the fight for 15, and I would argue before you just just decide out of hand that this is a bad idea, it makes a lot more sense to see what happens at the local level and base our conclusions not on our ideology, but what on the evidence tells us. Well, fair enough. Fair enough, but uh, I would I would submit that the evidence thus far uh, tends to support uh, the conservative side of the argument that when you when you just raise wages, uh, you don't create more jobs. Well, it seems it seems to me that the evidence is very equivocal right now, and that there's no real clear effect on economic growth. There's no real clear effect on wages, and so that's why I'm taking a wait and see. Um, I'm I'm remaining open minded about this, okay. and we'll see what happens. All right. So, All right. did you said you have an under the radar story for this week, Jay? No, actually, mine mine was going to be uh, this this uh, same thing, the same. Oh, okay, <laughs> well, there you story, go. So I guess we both caught out. that. All right, excellent, excellent. All right, so moving on to our non political thoughts of the week. I actually have a once again, I have a non political thought of the week. Though once again, it's sort of I guess you'd say semi political, and it's sure. also yet another recommendation. Um, okay, I don't watch a ton of TV. Uh, and over the years, I, I found that I can safely ignore one network in particular, which is CBS. CBS never seems to air anything I find even remotely appealing. But, okay. But that's changed recently. There's a newish show on CBS. It's in the first season, at least, called Brain Dead. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with it, Jay. Nope. Okay, well, it's written by the people who did The Good Wife, which is a show I have kind of mixed feelings about. I enjoyed the first few seasons, and it got a little too... Ridiculous. But anyway, Brain Dead is set in Washington, D.C., uh, where alien bugs are crawling into the ears of politicians and their staffers, eating half of their brains and turning them into raving partisans. Hmm. As what apparently is part of, and I haven't gotten far enough to, to know yet, to be an alien bug people plot to take over the country. Uh, it's mm. smart. It's funny. It's got Tony Shalhoub in a great role. Tony Shalhoub is one of I my, do like Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, he's back from the Wings days even. I liked him. And if you love politics, it's definitely worth checking out. And best of all, it's streaming on Amazon and, and free if you're an Amazon Prime member. I am totally hooked on it. And uh, I think it's a, a great show, well worth well worth checking out. It harkens, harkens back shades of uh, Robert A. Heinlein. The Puppet Masters, hmm. from what it sounds like to me, right? Uh, boy, you know, I, I wouldn't have a You've clue. You've read that, right? Uh, no. 
Not at all. Not even familiar. Not even – I mean I know who Heinlein is, but right. not familiar at all with the puppet masters. So. Well, it's the same sort of deal. Aliens sort of you know, controlling our brains through little – but anyway. Cool. Um, that's, that's a good recommendation. I, I, I uh, think so. So uh, what about you, Jay? Have any uh, non-political thoughts or recommendations? My non-political or? thought, although now, I'm, now I want to go on a uh, tear and tell everybody to go out and start reading uh, Robert A. Heinlein. Um, it has to do with, with watching the Olympics and a little bit with, with listening to Trump. Uh, and that is sort of thinking about uh, greatness, you know, and the Trump, you know, the theme of, of make America great again. Sure. And, and it's just, a, I think – with with the Olympics, um, you know, it, it's really on display that we get to see uh, true uh, greatness. And and talking about, uh, you know, Michael Phelps and um, uh, uh, Usain Bolt uh, and uh, Simone Biles and uh, these folks who who do things that are in many ways just superhuman, uh, and that we ought to just take a minute every every so often. Uh, not every four years, but to recognize uh, this human greatness, uh, and whether you want to ascribe it to human greatness or or sort of great god given talents uh, or sort of the the combination of 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 the two um, I, I think that that lifts our lives up a little bit um, and and I would say that this ought to expand not just to athletic uh, greatness but you know, take take some time and you know go to the library and and if they have CDs, li- I mean, listen to a Beethoven symphony, uh, listen to um, a Shostakovich symphony. Uh, you, you can get these, you know, as you pointed out um, with your book recommendations a couple weeks ago. I mean, so much is available online uh, for free or virtually for free, and it's always been available at, at your uh, public library. Um, and we we have uh, the the ability to to reach out and touch sort of this you know greatness, and I, I think I think we ought to take advantage of it more often than we do. Oh, absolutely! I think that's a, I think that's a, a great non political thought, a great right. recommendation for sure. And that's sort of my if you're if you're going to make America great again, uh, that's the way to start. I couldn't agree more, Jay. All right. Well, that's uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. Our email is politicsguys, one word, at gmail.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. If you're interested in helping us keep the show going, sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets and reviewing the show on iTunes really helps. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the PayPal or Patreon links on our website. And while you're there, be sure to check out our listener rewards. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.